WKNC 88.1. You guys are listening to Carolina Grown. I am here right now with MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger. Um, they are our local artist of the month for January, so I'm really, really excited to have him in the studio with me right now. Um, I am also joined by Brad Cook of Megafon fame, but he's sitting over here, so you guys won't be hearing too much of him. But uh, anyways, I'm sitting here to talk a little bit about uh, Bad Debt, which is one of His Golden Messenger's albums, I believe it was their second one, um, came out about five years ago. And it was reissued uh, this past week on Paradise of Bachelors, which is a fantastic local label. And I'm interested, first off, um, to know what was the motivation behind reissuing Bad Debt. I know that it didn't really get a whole lot of circulation the first time. So is that the primary motive behind this? Oh, um, yes. It's a record that I really like, and um, it marked a turning point in the way that I write songs. Um, when I made that record, um, I pressed, for, I started out by pressing a hundred copies on vinyl and, um, you know, basically selling them out of the trunk of my car, figuratively speaking. Um, and then I pressed a couple hundred more after that because I sold a bunch. In the process, I had connected with um, some dudes in the UK and did a deal with them um, to have it come out on CD over there. And that was right when the London riots were happening. So there was a big Sony warehouse that all of their stock was being stored in along with a bunch of other label stock and it was burned down. Um, so the CD was all the CDs except for what had made it onto shelves were destroyed. Um, but I've always liked this record. I consider it a proper Hiskel and Messenger record. Um, I, I don't think of it as a, as a collection of demos, even right. though it is the fidelity is different from a lot of other Hiskel and Messenger records. And you mentioned that this was like a, a turning point of sorts for like Hiskel and Messenger in terms of like the writing. What was so different about the songwriting on this record as opposed to um, the first record, which was... Uh, Country High East Cotton, yeah. I believe. There was another record after that called Root Work that was a live record. Um, <clears throat> I think my relationship to... My emotional state was different. My relationship to music had changed. Um, I had... Um, my wife and I had a baby boy in 2009. Bad Debt was being made in 2010. So it's, it's four years old. Um and I was, I was pretty, um, just kind of burnt out on, I didn't really know what my relationship with music was going to be. So I feel like Bad Debt was made really primarily as a way for me to reconnect or see if I could reconnect to, um, to my emotional, um, relationship with music. Gotcha. Really. Um, and it was, it ended up being a compelling collection of songs. I mean, definitely one that, um, that showed me that there was another way to write songs that I hadn't, I hadn't explored yet. Right. And you and, uh, Scott Hirsch, who is the other half, I guess, of his golden messenger, um, you guys dabbled in a bit of the punk world from what I've heard beforehand. Um, what was it that 
pushed you more towards the folk music? Was it just kind of a natural, like, you got tired of making punk music, or did it just kind of come out that way? Well, we were in um, punk and hardcore bands a long time ago. Like, Scott and I started playing together in 1994, so 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, the change, the change in musical aesthetic wasn't really abrupt. We right. just got older, and um, we, I think maybe we felt a little limited by what sort of emotional quotient that we could get into in in a punk and hardcore. I mean, that's not necessarily the case. There are many bands that, um, that have, you know, can sort of um, reach those emotional territories with that, with, in those kinds of music, but I think we just were wanting to stretch out a little bit. Right. It's it it kind of puts you into a box when you make that kind of music, and not to say that people can't expand from that and make cool punk music because I mean, like even locally, we have like whatever brains and stuff doing a lot of cool stuff with it. But it definitely seems like a lot of people grow into folk music. I know I for one really wasn't into it when I was younger, and suddenly, like right around the time I hit like eighteen or so, I was like, okay, so this is what I've been missing out on. Um, and you are also pretty, pretty into folklore. Um, what, what sort of affiliation do you have with it? Like, can you explain, um, what you do with folklore? I, cause you're pretty academically involved with it. If I, have heard um, I, I, that might be a, a, a slight misconception. Um, I got, I have a graduate degree in folklore from UNC so at this point in time, my um, because I'm just so busy, I will sometimes teach the fo- the intro to folklore class at UNC, which is a large um, elective class. Right. And um, but for several years, I worked as a contract folklorist for the state of North Carolina, which meant that they would because. Um, they knew that I was, I knew about music. They would send me out to do what they would call um, folk life surveys, and they would have me do the music part. So they would say, for instance, um, and I did a lot of work in the eastern part of the state. So they would say, go out to Pender County. You have a month. Record as much traditional music as you can. And I would start with usually one phone number and I would go talk to that person and say, okay, I'm here recording music. I have this long, um, who do you think are, um, in your opinion, the most important tradition bearers musically in this area? Um, and I would record them. So, you know, I was doing that as sort of a hired gun. It would be for the arts council, the humanities council, Um, there's a new museum called the Earl Scruggs Museum opening up in, um, um, Hickory, I think. I did a bunch of work for them. I would do that kind of work for whoever paid me. It wasn't particularly academic. Right. Um, and I have kind of a, um, evolving and sort of love-hate relationship with the academic world as it relates to folklore. Um, and more and more um, 
I kind of question what what the place what that relationship is. I'm I'm not entirely sure. I, I've become less clear about my own feelings about um, folklore in the academic world over the years, for sure. So I guess then, like conventionally within folklore, what are some of the things that you came across when you were like going throughout Eastern North Carolina that really just kind of wowed you that you didn't know about? in terms of, like, learning the tradition of North Carolina music, because there's so much of it? Um, you know, I recorded a ton of old-time music, a lot of um, bluegrass music, string band music, um, and, you know, I, I'm i the last person that could tell you, that could, like, tell you the name of a fiddle tune after hearing a measure of it. That's, like, not me. Um, there are other people that are much better at that than I am. Um, but, you know, doing that work more than anything taught me to listen really deeply. And I don't know how, if I can articulate how that plays into what I do as Hiskold Messenger, but it does. Um, all that time that I spent listening to people and asking them about their lives and having them tell me really intensely personal stuff and just encouraging them to keep talking. That was a really big, that was huge. Right. It was huge for me to, um, to be in these people's living rooms and kitchens, places that I would never ever have access to, not in a million years, except for under the auspices of doing this folklore work and have them, you know, um, talk to me about music, but, that really was a point of entry into way more intense discussions about life. And, and that time was very emotional for me. I mean, you know, I was trying to make enough money to raise a baby. My wife and I were living out in the middle of nowhere and I was driving out to the middle of nowhere to do this work with people that most other people would consider have a low opinion of probably. And right. those were some of the most, um, those were, those were really big times for me. And you know, my, at the time, the music I was making and playing was just for me. I mean, I was totally disconnected from, from everybody at that point. Right. And I mean like, so bad debt was like recorded in your house, like from, Everything that I've read, you know, like, while your kid's, like, asleep in the next room. Like, it seems like a very personal thing. Yeah. So it seems like you took a lot from the folklore, you know, whether or not necessarily just be sonically, but in terms of, like, how you approach music and kind of, like, stripping back that layer. Because a lot of His Golden Messenger, I feel like, is, it it doesn't have that filter that a lot of people have. It seems like you're very... Uh, you're very okay with just kind of bearing it all out there because there's a lot of spirituality in it. Talk a lot about uh, your child, uh, children now, I believe, yeah. at this point. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's always really refreshing to see an artist that just kind of isn't afraid of laying it out there. And it seems like it's clear that whether or not you were putting music out, you would be making music. And that's I feel like that's a real dividing line when it comes to some artists. Like a lot of people will be doing it to make music. And then I think there's people that regardless, like I said, of whether or not people are listening to it, you're going to be playing guitar and singing about the things that are happening to you, regardless. Yeah. I mean, my, my relationship to music as a kid, my, my dad is a guitarist and a singer, and 
he, um, you know, he, he didn't work in public, definitely not the way I do, but there was always music around the house. There was always records around the house. And, um, you know, I mean, I have, um, I just have a very particular emotional relationship to music that, um, you know, is, uh, I share it with a pretty small circle of people and people that are sort of like-minded about the uses of music in the world and the way that we are in the world and how music can be helpful um, in those ways. I mean, Brad is that way. Right. Scott Hirsch is that way. Phil Cook is that way. Um, but, you know, I mean, and all of us have been through the ringer a little bit. You know, I've spent a lifetime being a failure as a musician. You know what I mean? It's only in the past few years that um, I've started to get some kind of recognition. But you got to remember that I spent three times that amount of time doing stuff that, um, you know, was was relatively unnoticed. Right. I mean, here we have the reissue of Bad Debt that is getting like Rolling Stone write-ups. Yeah. And you've been doing this for, it seems like, decades. At well, it point. has been decades. So it's, <laughs> but it's always decades. really welcome to see something like that. It's like a, like one of those stories where it's like, it's, it's true. Like, you know, if you keep putting what you have into it, it's like someone's going to recognize it. And yeah. it seems too like, you know, uh, the bad debt started. You sent the CDs and stuff over to the UK. It seems like they've picked up a lot. I don't want to say a lot more in the U.S., but it seems like there is a pretty strong core of fans over there. Um, what do you attribute that to? Um, I think part of it has to do with, you know, because Americana music, roots music in the U.S., um, or music that draws on sort of traditional American music, it's, it's um, you know, it's right in our own backyard, and I think we often take that kind of stuff for granted. Right. In the UK, um, it's just exotic enough that because, you know, I mean, not to make a broad generalization, but there is a large swath of music listeners and just cultural aficionados over there that are fascinated, continue to be fascinated by American culture, uh, you know, of this sort of traditional variety. And there are a lot of musicians over there that desperately want to be able to play that music. Right. Some of them do it well. Some of them don't. I mean, just like here. But, yeah. Um, so when I come over there say, saying, you know, that I'm, I live in North Carolina, I play um, sort of American songwriter, rootsy music, um, I don't know. It's almost like they feel like they're getting the real thing. I mean, whether, you know, whatever the real thing is, that's right. Something that's a, um, that's a designation bestowed on it later, but it's sort of imaginary, but right. So what, how would you compare playing a show overseas as opposed to playing a show stateside? Like what sort of differences are there that you've noticed? They all seem the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I'm always glad to play a show for anybody that right. wants to listen. Um, I, I don't know. I would be hard-pressed to 
say that UK and US shows in particular any, are, any different. are different. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, <laughs> I've played some really great venues over there, um, sort of non-traditional non-traditional venues of the type that I've seen, I feel like maybe I play less of here. You gotcha. know, like sort of old, um, like you guys, Megafon played the band room, right? And um, up in York, up in Yorkshire. Yeah. Um, there's a place that, that Brad and I have both played separately called the band room. That's an old um, silver band, like community silver band concert hall. I mean, concert hall is, it's not, big it's right <laughs> it's a couple couple hundred capacity maybe um that's just out in the middle of nowhere but some of the most beautiful countryside you could think of and it's hard to imagine who's going to make it out for a concert there but come showtime it's always sold out it's kind of amazing so stuff like that i mean that does exist here um i guess maybe i just do less of it than i do right there. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, like Hall River Ballroom. In the middle I, well, yeah, I mean, uh, that like, Hall River Ballroom is a special, yeah, special situation. We are sort of lucky to have one of the most fascinating and beautiful music venues in the country. And so acoustically, like, incredible. Like, everything just resonates so wonderfully in that room. It's yeah. Like, I couldn't imagine seeing a bad show there. Like, yeah. I don't think it happens. Yeah, it's a great place. But um, we're going to take a very brief break from conversation. You guys are getting ready to hear a uh, in-studio take of Bad Debt, the title track from His Golden Messenger's latest release. Uh, as I mentioned, that was reissued this week, and it will be played in full at the Cat's Cradle Backroom on Friday, February 21st. So definitely be on the lookout for that show when it comes around. Um, you are listening to Carolina Grown, and you're getting ready to hear some live takes from His Golden Messenger right here. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Take your whip a bit farther down the line Yeah, you're all over me And I'm not even coming I'm gonna live a long, long time Yeah, the old master sea Wrote a beast like me Walked through those city, those city
KNC 88.1. We are back with more Carolina Grown. You were just listening to a little bit of Bad Debt from His Golden Messenger. That was the title track off of the album. And we are going to hear another track uh, later in the hour. But first, we are going to do a little bit more chatting here with uh, Michael Taylor from His Golden Messenger. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in finding out about you is you mentioned before that you feel like Bad Debt and Poor Moon are kind of linked together. Um, what do you feel connects those records and how would you compare those records to hall um well i think of i, I think of hall as sort of part of that group too um just because they share some songs for one thing right uh, the obvious like half of bad dead is on your other albums. yeah yeah so they all share songs and they all came from the heads same headspace really um because once i had i mean i could almost argue that this record that we've just made there's a new his golden messenger record that's been recorded is is in that same zone too um it's just like i found a particular um territory that i started to work in song in terms of songwriting that um is sort of like just my zone you know what i mean yeah um that like there's a kind of vernacular that I've developed over those records, um, Bad Dad, Poor Moon Ha, and and this upcoming one that just is it's like very personal. There's a lot of shared ideas across all of them. That's why I mean they all kind of feel like my kids in a way, you right? Know? Um, they just have a lot of the same ideas. I mean, kind of there's a lot of stuff that I revisit across all of those records. Yeah. And they've got a lot of the same aesthetics and aside from bad debt being like a lot more stripped down, a lot of them seem to follow a lot of the same kind of formations. Hall has a little bit more, um, I guess embellishments to it than previous works, but I can definitely see like there are a lot of overarching themes. And, um, one of them I feel like is spirituality seems to be like a lot at the core of your music. Um, do you feel like working through this stuff within your songs kind of helps you like suss it out personally or is yeah. that what you're going for? Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's the, that's the idea with the stuff is allowing myself to, um, because I, I mean, I'm not unique in, um, in trying to, um, determine and negotiate what my relationship to faith is at all. Um, I think that's part of why these records have resonated with some people is that there are questions here that a lot of us have, especially people that are my age, um, right. about what um, what good is faith, what good is spirituality, how do we conceive of a spirit or a higher power, what sorts of sacrifices do we have to make to be in the good graces of a higher power? Are those sacrifices worth it? Um, 
there's just a lot of questions that, you know, I haven't answered at all. I'm like, feel like I'm pretty much at the same place right. as I was when I made bad debt, except for I can articulate the questions a little better. Like I can talk about, I can talk myself through these questions with a little more finesse. And it seems like a lot of that too is, you know, it's like you said, there's not a whole lot of ground that's treaded, I guess, personally within it, but it's, it's nice to be able to share those emotions and be able to get it out and see that it resonates so much with so many people. Because I think, like you mentioned, that's a lot of what people seem to be drawn towards. It's very, very heartfelt. It's very sincere and it's, ultimately really relatable um and another thing that i think a lot of people really hinge on is you know your children come up a lot in your music um so how is how is like coming into parenthood affected not only your outlook on life but also like played into your songwriting um i mean that's sort of wrapped up with this sort of quest to um understand my relationship to faith i think because you know, you have kids, and at least I, when I had kids, when I had my first kid, I um, I feel like it was the, the idea that I have a lot less control in my life than I thought I did was brought into sharp relief. Um, you know, there are, um, and that's simply because prior to having children, you know, I was only really responsible for myself and to a certain degree, my wife. Right. Um, but it's easy to, it's easy to start coasting with that mindset and start to take for granted that things are always going to be, um, the way that they are, you know? Um, but with children, there's so many big questions about what, um, what, you know, how to, what my priorities are, how, how do I, what do I need to change in my life? Um, you know, because there are these, um, people that are a hundred percent dependent on me. So, you know, being able to make enough money to like have enough food in the house, those are all very, those become very real, right. real situations. Um, um, and also at the same time, having kids, like there is so much, it's such a concentration of love that it really made me think differently about things like being in a band, being on tour, being at a club, all of that stuff became a lot less interesting to me. And um, and it had already begun to anyway, and I suspect, I'll, you know, this is just me. I mean, a lot of people may be musicians with kids, and um, they might feel differently. But for me personally, I just had a total reorientation about what I felt like was important to me. Right, and it seems almost like a bit of like cruel irony that it kind of plays in that you're starting to get a lot of attention right around the time that, you know, it's it's not something that seems super lucrative. Like it's like you enjoy being able to like provide for family and be with your family and like enjoy these moments at the same time that everyone's like, Oh man, I really wish his golden messenger was going on tour. Like, I mean, it's no, it's totally, I'm in a very lucky and fortunate position. I mean, to, 
I can go out and play shows when I want to play, but you know, frankly, like having a family and having two little kids at home, it keeps it in perspective. They don't right. care. They don't care about this <laughs> stuff, you know, and that's the way it should be. Like, who cares right. about his gold messenger? I mean, I care about it. It's sort of at the core of what um, I do as a musician, but also it's just the stuff in his gold messenger is at the core of what I am as a person. And I'm going to have that with me whether or not I'm flying around playing shows. Right. Um, and, you know, I've, I'm lucky that I've been able to strike a balance. I'm at home a lot, and I'm, I'm able to sort of fulfill some obligations that I have with shows. Right, which, and speaking of some of the recent obligations that you've had, you took part in the uh, Magnolia Electric Company shows recently, the uh, tribute shows to Jason Molina. Um, how did all of that stuff come about? Like, how how did you get together with all of these folks, and what sort of process went behind working on all these songs? They called me and asked me if I would do it. Um, they asked the guys from Magnolia Electric Company, um, so Jason, Pete, Mark, and Mikey, and Mike Brenner are the five, um, five guys, you know, that were in that band the longest. Um, Jason Molina, the chief songwriter, passed away in the spring. Um, I think that it was part of their, it has been, continues to be part of their grieving process for their friend to feel like they have, they can have some sort of closure with this thing that was such a huge part of their lives. I mean, all of those guys made their living on the road as Magnolia Electric Company. And although Jason Molina was the songwriter, um, those guys all had a huge part in that story um, that I feel like has been kind of overlooked. I can understand why, I suppose. But without those five guys with him, Molina would not have been making the great records that he was making. I mean, maybe he would be making other great records. Chances are good. But the fact is, he gathered this group of brothers around him to make these records for a very specific and intentional reason. And, um, you know, that was, that was, has been really um, traumatic for them. You know, I mean, they all kind of scattered when all this stuff happened with Jason. I'm not the, um, you know, I, I knew Jason and feel like I knew, I feel like I knew him, um, pretty well. Like I spent a lot of time with him on the road and, um, you know, in a lot of living rooms and stuff late at night, but those guys had a way deeper relationship to him. And, um, so because we had all traveled together and they thought I would be a good person to help them sing these songs and sort of like turn it into a traveling Irish wake. I mean, there was sadness, but there was also like sort of happiness that they were getting to do this in front of people that love these songs one last time. I mean, we are doing another handful of these things, but like the, I mean, it definitely has, shelf life right and we would never play the same city more than one time um and really it's i think it's for 
these guys, you know, the guys in Magnolia to continue their grieving and to let people that love the music hear the songs live one more time. Which is something that I feel like a lot of people will really get to enjoy because a lot of people I know really started getting into Jason Molina that weren't really aware of Magnolia Electric Company after they heard about his passing. You know, I, for one, wasn't really aware of them until I heard of the news, and then it was one of those, like, oh, man, like, I can't believe this is something I missed out on. And it's, it's like you said, you know, it seems like it's an interesting part of the grieving process, but it's also a way for these people to get new connections with these songs and to build relationships with an artist that they would never have the chance to see at this point. Yeah. It's something that seems very special, and it's it's awesome to hear that you guys are going to do more of those. Um, but moving uh, back towards the his school messenger side of things, um, what moving into this, you know, like what what kind of role uh, is Scott playing within his school messenger? Scott records all the records. He plays ninety five percent of the bass on the records. He mixes them. Um, so you know, without Scott, um, the records wouldn't sound the way they do. You know. And we make our records, the full band ones, really with a very intentional sound. Um, and, um, you know, he's been like my brother for 20 years. So, you know, there's, um, we have a language, especially when we're making music together. It's kind of, there, we have a shorthand way of communicating that is, it's easy to make, you know, these records, Poor Moon, Ha, the new one, um, none of these records have ever taken more than a week to make, you know. Which with, is crazy to hear. But, I mean, you know, that said, we did take 20 years learning how to do it together. Right. And there have been times, you know, 10, 15 years ago when we've taken two or three years to make a record. I feel like we had to do that in order to say we're going to start making records in five days. That's a record for us. Shouldn't take longer than that. Unless there's a really good and happy reason for them to, you know? Right. And speaking of this new record, um, what, what's coming down the line with this golden messenger? Like how, how soon could this be expected to be coming into people's ears? The fall. Awesome. Yeah. Like, or late summer, early fall. It's sounding like, um, and um, so we're figuring out all the details on that now. I probably can't or right. just don't have enough information to really talk about it. But the record is done. The recording is done. Awesome. That is excellent to hear because I know a lot of people here, they're like, okay, cool, we're we're getting this reissue. What? When are we going to get new stuff? When are we going to get new stuff? Yeah. And um, in terms of reissues, um, you guys ever plan to reissue uh, Country High East Cotton? Is that something you're considering at this uh... point? You know, I still have a whole bunch of copies of that at home, so there's no, there's not a need for that yet. Right. I don't know. I mean, the record is interesting to me. It's very, it's a, it's a transitional record. I, I, I like that record, um, but, you know, it is, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting record. For me. <laughs> you know, it's um. It's, I don't make records like that anymore, really, you know? Right. So, um, 
it's a peculiar record in the Hiskold Messenger catalog, kind of. Well, hopefully with Bad Deck coming out, people will be more interested in the back catalog of Hiskold Messenger, right. and some of these copies will start moving out of the yes. house. Um, but uh, closing things out, um, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank thoroughly, you. thoroughly enjoyed talking with you about all this stuff. Um, you folks out there in Radioland are getting ready to hear a in-studio take of Drum, which is the closing track on Bad Debt. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the hour, uh, His Golden Messenger is going to be performing Bad Debt in its entirety at the Cat's Cradle Backroom on Friday, February 21st. The album came out this week on Paradise of Bachelors, and it is available online. Um, it is a fantastic record. Everyone should definitely get the chance to go check it out. Um, and once again, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you. This is closing out our Artist of the Month feature here with His Golden Messenger. You guys can listen to this online uh, in wonderful podcast form uh, later next week. Uh, but thank you for tuning in. And don't go anywhere because we have another full hour of Carolina Grown coming up next. And I beat my drum Everybody to come running Yes, and I beat my drum Oh, all the day Yes, and all rise, all rise, all rise In the morning Yes, and take the good news Carry it away Yeah, take the good news Yeah, the farmer shall wear all the green of his furrow. Now the plowman shall yield all his teams for the day. Or the hunter shall steal all his dangerous arrows. Yes, and take the good news. Carry it away. Yeah, take the good news. Yeah,